Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. We had some big news at the end of last month pertaining to an issue that we've been covering here a fair bit in the last few weeks, and that is that McCown's long spur is now McCown's wrong spur. The American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee changed the common name. They removed the eponym honoring the one-time Confederate General John Porter McCown. The bird will now be known on checklists and field guides and everywhere else as thick-billed long sperm. And I know there has been some consternation about the name. There were a lot of options available for this bird, uh, including bay-winged and black-breasted, which were both names that have been used in the relatively distant past. Other names referred to the habitat it prefers, shortgrass longspur, prairie longspur. Uh, in fact, shortgrass and thick-billed were the two finalists that the committee was choosing between. And in the end, they went with thick-billed, which is, I, I do have to acknowledge, a field mark that is evident in all plumages and sexes of the bird, at least relative to the other longspurs, so that is helpful to some extent. Let's say you have a mixed flock of longspurs on some Oklahoma prairie. The thick-billed are the ones with the thicker bills. It's, it's helpful. It's also sort of a rough translation of the genus uh, Rinchophanes, Rinchophanes, Rinchophanes. I'm not exactly sure how to say that. I've been saying online it was a direct translation. I don't know that it is, but it is sort of close. Uh, Rincho, Rinko is from the Greek for bill. Uh, but to the best I can tell, the phanes part means showing, which can be interpreted as prominent. I suppose I also sort of found it to mean shining or bright, which is similar depending on how loose you want to play these translations. Perhaps uh, some Latin scholar who's listening can help me out here, or at least some expert in the weird Latin, Greek, whatever language of scientific bird names. So anyway, thick-billed longspur. It's an okay name. I think it will grow on us. Uh, but perhaps most exciting is the fact that it, it now provides us a path forward on this honorific eponym name issue. I, I still think there are problems with the process that need to be addressed a little more directly, and perhaps they will at this month's North American Ornithological Conference. That is the AOS's annual meeting. It will be held virtually this year, obviously. So we will await that. Uh, but it is a start, and that is heartening and promising, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. So welcome, thick-billed longspur. On the show today, I talk slow birding, better appreciating your immediate surroundings, and giving you permission, if you need it, to bird however you dang well want to bird. Vermont naturalist and creator of the slow birding movement, Bridget Butler, is with me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of August 2020. No ABA area notables to report this week, but here are a few highlights from the past seven days or so. From Missouri comes a very strange report of a brown booby on the current river in Ripley County. The bird was photographed by a kayaker who further confused matters by reporting a nest in the same picture. Obviously, a nesting brown booby in the middle of the continent is impossible, but brown booby does have an incredible penchant for vagrancy across the interior of the U.S. and has been nearly annual in neighboring Arkansas for the last few years. The photos shared are unequivocally of a brown booby perched on the side of a river, which would be a first from Missouri. We'll see if the bird can be found again. 
Also in the theme of Southern Birds Seen Far to the North, which is a song we have been singing a lot lately, both because of the season and because of a changing climate, comes a photograph of a curve-billed thrasher near Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. This is the second for the province and only the eighth record for Canada for this Desert Southwest mimic. Those are the highlights I have for you this week. For a more complete look at all the rare birds across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba. You can also hang out in our Rare Bird Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. If there's one thing that this year has taught birders, it's how to appreciate your immediate surroundings, the The cancellation of festivals, international trips, heck, even many local bird walks and meetings has encouraged us to be more present and to be more local. And that is something that Vermont naturalist Bridget Butler has been pushing for a long time as part of her slow birding initiative. I am happy to welcome her here today to talk about slow birding and how birding can create a connection to yourself and the place where you live. Welcome, Bridget. Thanks for joining me. Huzzah, Nate. Thanks for having me. Of course. So yeah, tell me a little bit about this slow birding initiative. What were you seeing in the birding community or in yourself that sort of precipitated this change of focus? Yeah, you, it goes back to, there's two big moments, I think, in in my life that kind of helped me um, formulate this whole idea of a, of a different way to approach birding. I think the first one, unfortunately, was my first introduction um, to birding and the birding hmm. community. Um, it wasn't super pleasant, unfortunately. Oh, oh, I was living out on Cape Cod. I was working for the Massachusetts Audubon Society um, at the Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary, which is a just gorgeous spot out there. Um, and, um, you know, my focus was really on, uh, on wildlife in general. I was like a generalist mm-hmm. in terms of natural history. Um, but birds were definitely of interest. I, I think at that time, the birding community and in that place, the birding community was um, probably a little bit more intense than <laughs> naturalist communities. And so, um, you know, the demand that was put on naturalists there to deliver birds, to identify things quickly was was very, very high. You know, people come to the Cape for a, a number of different types of species of birds. And so all the naturalists there were were very, very skilled. Um, and I was not one of them. And I got put down a lot. You know, we have this word shaming now. We didn't have that back yeah, in the yeah, yeah. 90s, right? So now I'm like, oh, that's what that was. Um, the funny thing was, is that I was seeing a lot of rare species before anyone else, and I didn't even know it. Hmm. Right. So here I was, I wasn't the person, I, I wasn't comfortable on bird walks with birders because there was this competitive aspect. There was an yeah. aspect that was kind of guarded, like uh, the Hudsonian Godwit is here, but I'm not going to tell you where it is kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I really, I didn't really like that. And then to come to find out that I was the one that saw the scissor tail fly catcher before anyone else on Fort Hill one year. And I had seen snow geese before it hit the phone line. This was back in the day when all those rare birds were put on phones. <laughs> oh, phones. My goodness. You had to call on a landline to get the bird report. Like, this is like so pre-Ebert. So, so that really turned me off. And I was just like, oh, I don't like that just got totally shoved aside. And it wasn't until I moved to Vermont. And Vermont just has just this much more laid back 
attitude. Um, and it just shifted for me. Everybody was really welcoming. They wanted you to find birds. They wanted to help you get on birds, Mm -hmm. see different things. And it really changed for me. The, the first sets of birders that I met in Vermont were just great mentors. And oddly enough, a lot of them were like, oh, I'm not really a birder. There's like <laughs> a group of people, right, that are like, oh, I like birds, but I'm not really a birder. Yeah, it's funny that I, I've, I've heard that before. It's almost like the sort of intense sort of gatekeeping aspect that you were discussing earlier. It's like people don't want to be associated with that. So they say, oh, I'm not a birder, which is kind of a shame for birders because you are, I mean, they, obviously they are a birder. They're skilled at bird identification. They enjoy birds. Like what else are the characteristics of a birder? But yeah, it's a, it's a shame that that sort of intense nature of birding in some places can very much put people off. Yeah. And, and have you noticed too, like the difference between how we like name ourselves, like I'm a birder or am I a bird watcher? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that whole difference as well. Um, and I, and that definitely totally stuck with me and I, and thinking about how to make more birding accessible and welcoming to everybody was a big part of what I thought through with slow birding. Mm -hmm. The second big thing that happened in my life that changed my birding practice was kids. (laughs) No, I hear that. Yeah. So like, you know, we have three kids, um, they're, uh, seven, eight and nine right now. And man, it just shifted. And so even though I don't feel like I'm a, I'm like a core lister, I don't really know what my number is. Um, I do keep bird lists and I do use eBird sure. and like that. And I would chase a bird every once in a while, right? Like I missed the painted bunting that showed up. In- <laughs> That's a cool bird. You want to chase that. Like you want to yeah. see that. Like I get that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it wasn't like my total drive. And at the same time, mm-hmm having kids all of a sudden I was like, I can't just pick up and go. Mm -hmm. Like I can't just go whenever I want anymore. And so it really shifted my focus to what's in front of me right now. And how do I make the most of that, that moment? Yeah. And So these are all the kind of things that kind of came into play for me with, with slow birding and trying to slow things down and not finish once I had ticked off the species or once I had, um, you know, learned the bird song and the identify identification together. It's like, Mm -hmm. how, how much deeper can I go? And that's, that's kind of where slow birding was born. You do think there's a a type of person or a personality that sort of takes to this slow birding philosophy more readily than others? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, it's sort of a chicken and the e- chicken and egg sort yeah. of question. Like, is there a? I definitely think there are people who have sort of a personality to want to, you know, see everything before they move on to another place, and are less inclined to, you know, see something and then move on. Not, I, and that's like I'm not putting a value judgment on either of those. I think those are both like two kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, but I definitely think there's a kind of birder who would hear, "Oh, slow birding. Well, that's that's really something I want to I want to be involved with." Yeah that I want to try. Yeah. So there, I guess a couple things have happened to me. Like I, part of me thinks that there are some people um, who have gravitated towards it, who, who do have a big fat list and they mm-hmm. have traveled around a lot and now they're looking for something new or they're older. And so they can't, um, they're not as able to go everywhere. They're mm-hmm. not as physically fit as they were when they were in their twenties birding. 
So being able to stay in one place and still fine tune their skills and their awareness is really Mm -hmm. attractive. There's other people who I've run into who it's very freeing for them, Mm -hmm. where I had one participant in a slow burning weekend say to me, you just like took a huge weight off my shoulders. (laughs) And she was one of these people who travels all over the world. She hires guides wherever she goes. Mm -hmm. And she was like, now I can just be in my backyard and enjoy what's there. She was feeling guilty for spending time in her garden and not birding during the month of May. And I was Mm -hmm. like, man, there's so much to discover about what's in your backyard in that month. Like what's moving through, what's possible, what shows up that you never thought would show up before. Um, And so that, you know, that piece is also part of slow birding as well. We, I try to get people to think of if you stay in one place and you're making observations, even on a daily basis in that one place, what is going to be revealed to you? Even mm-hmm. right down to something like, you know, the starlings that are there every year, really simple birds and taking like pleasure in those common birds or the birds that maybe you kind of poo poo other yeah. times, right? Um, what else does that bird have to give you as a gift in a way about connecting with nature? Yeah, it's really interesting the the idea that someone would feel guilty for not going out and birding. I I definitely feel and this is just sort of my sense that yeah. in the last I don't know, maybe decade, certainly in the last like six months or so, there's been like a change in birder priorities, or at least a change in how we value those priorities. You know, Ooh. for a long, long time, you know, the big list was the end all be all of a birder. And I definitely feel like there have been more people sort of approaching birding in different ways. You know, there's been a celebration of approaching birding in that way. I'm curious if you've seen something similar. Okay. So, so just imagine like I'm thinking all these things in my head about slow birding and I'm starting Mm -hmm. to launch these programs and I'm trying to wrap my head around like exactly what is it that I'm trying to do. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, these books start to come out. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay, Crossley's um, Bird ID, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw that book, I was like, "What is this? This is crazy!" It's like a mashup. I wasn't big on photographic ID field guides to begin mm-hmm. with, and I like just didn't understand it. I was like, "That's just a hot mess." And then I went and saw him talk, and I. And he talked about how we, you know, like left brain and right brain and how the left brain is really analytical and how the right brain is really like about the big picture Mm -hmm. and synthesizing like all those different pieces that go together. And then it all made sense. And I was like, oh, I get this now. Like seeing the bird in place on that plate that he has in that book. So that was huge. And then like the other ones that started to come out, the Birding by Impression by um, Carlson and Rosselet. Right. Yeah. That, that was huge for me. Like, I was like, yay. Okay. That went beyond what is it, Gestalt and the, yeah. the jizz thing that, you know, we talked about years ago with birding um, and just pushed it a little bit farther. Um, I loved the section in there. And I can't remember um, if uh, Carlson or Rosselet wrote it, which one, but it was like a, a sidebar about noticing robins and just spending time with robins um, and noticing all the different behaviors and things that we can notice when normally we're just like, ooh, American robin and, mm-hmm. and we're off to something else. 
the other work that really informed the stuff that I'm doing now is came out of um, the uh, eight shields work um, yeah. done on nature connection, right? So John Young's book, What the Robin Knows, speaking of robins, right? Let's really slow down and, and listen and look and absorb all we can. So those things kind of validated what I was thinking and helped me kind of then think more about what I wanted to bring to people and how I wanted to make birding more accessible to more people. Yeah. yeah it's almost like uh, birders were looking for permission <laughs> exactly. to, to approach it a different way. Yeah, without a doubt. And I, yeah. and again, like I get that a lot that people are just like, Oh, like this counts, right? Like it was important, but that's that belonging thing, right? Yeah. So yeah, you want certainly. to belong as part of this community. And I, and if you're told you have to do it this way, which is why it, right. it didn't feel good for me way back when, when I was on the Cape and there mm -hmm. was that intensity to birding, I really wanted that to, to mellow out a bit. And so, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm, I remember all the crappy stuff so that I could Yeah, right. That's the stuff better. that sticks with you. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you turn someone who is perhaps, you know, this devout twitcher, this devout chaser of birds into a slow birder? What are the processes that you sort of introduce to them? Yeah. And I'm still trying to figure that out. And each workshop, you know, there's one person who comes in that's ready to like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to get a huge list of birds this weekend. And when, you know, the first three slides, you know, into the first talk go, and I'm talking about robins and song sparrows, you can see them start <laughs> to be like, uh-oh, that uh-oh look comes on their face. Um, so there's a couple things. I think things that have worked for me on my walks is just kind of, um, well, slowing the pace down even more. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I try to do on a walk is to stay with the bird as long as the bird is there with us and notice as much as we can beyond just the identification. I can remember one time um, being out with a young woman that I was mentoring and we came upon this group of cowbirds and we could have just been like, okay, one, two, three, four, five cowbirds. Great. Let's go. But what started happening was the birds were moving and using their bodies in ways that was a little bit different. I was like, okay, here's this little, you know, gaggle of cowbirds all sitting near each other on a couple of branches. And a couple of the birds started to do this weird like bill thing where the bill would go in the air and then they would lean really far forward and the the um, the wings would go out and they would do this weird flutter thing with their mm -hmm. wings. And then another one would do it. And it almost looked like they were going to fall off the branch when they were doing it. Now, four of the birds did it and the fifth one just sat there. And after a while, we were like, what is going on? And the one that one that was still. And one that was falling over flew away. And then the other ones flew in the other direction. And what we surmised, especially after we went and grabbed one of the Stokes bird behavior guides, mm -hmm. was that we had a female and a bunch of males and the males were all displaying for her. So right. it's really kind of getting people to key in on the other stuff. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we got the identification or maybe we don't even have the identification. What, what are the other things that we can start to look at? Yeah. So I think switching up bird walks that way, also getting people to think on those bird walks that like our goal isn't to like cover the whole trail. So we make sure we get every single bird. It It's to kind of experience the birds that we have in each moment, no matter what they are. 
And I also think that takes a lot of uh, pressure off of the the leader mm. of the of the trip too, because I, you know I've talked to young people about you know they're wanting to get into leading bird walks, and a lot of them feel kind of anxious about it because maybe they don't feel as though their bird ID skills are up to whatever level they feel like they need. But if you focus on the stuff that's right in front of you. And this is what I always say to them. It's like, focus on the birds that you see, not the ones that you don't see. And I think there's a kind of a, uh, a tendency to maybe perseverate on the birds that you missed. You know, you missed it. You can't, can't do anything about that. Yeah. But you can still have wonderful experiences with the ones that are right in front of you. And I think it opens up this world of being an interpreter, of being a leader of a bird walk to oh, so many more people yeah. uh, who would be very good at it. Okay. And then think about the one participant who isn't really the birder who came with like the partner who is the birder and mm-hmm. they came just because they want to support them. You, you know, I want you to go and do these things and they stay in the parking lot. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you come back and the the person in the parking lot is like, you won't believe what I saw. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I think we've all, all had that experience. Yeah. How many species I saw in the parking lot. Yeah. So that gets to the other um, practice that I use with slow birding, which is using sit spots I do this in two ways in getting people to pick a sit spot close by near them, something that's really easily accessible that they could maybe go to every day for 20 minutes and just spend 20 minutes. 20 minutes is the goal. Cause I feel like 20 minutes gives the birds that opportunity to know that you're not a threat and mm-hmm. get you, especially if you come to the same spot over and over again. And so Either develop that sit spot routine um, right near you as an individual and keep a journal, write down what you see, map out where the birds go, move to and from, write down whether you know what they are or they aren't, um, describe some of the behaviors that you're seeing. The other cool practice around this, and this I learned from the bird language workshops um, that I've attended and taught um, with the White Pine program out of Maine is this collective sit spot approach, which is so fascinating. You know, when when we bird on a walk, there's a leader typically, Mm -hmm. and you're keeping a list of what you see and you're noting things along the way. And a good leader will draw stuff out of other people and, and, um, you know, use their knowledge as well. The, The bird sit spot kind of collective practices when you have a group and you all kind of spread out on the landscape and sit apart from each other, but in a way where you can still see someone else. And when you come back, you kind of map out what you've seen together. And it's really amazing the stories that you can tell because birds move across the Mm -hmm. landscape. So one person might have one part of the story and the other person might have the finished part of the story. Um, So that's the other piece that I really love that's part of slow burning is, is sitting on the land Um, noting what you see over time, and then coming back together to kind of share those stories and draw out that whole group experience together. Yeah. You talk about slow birding as as building this connection to yourself and this place where you live. And, And that's something that really resonates with me. One of the things that, you know, I notice a lot is that in a lot of different subjects and a lot of different worlds, the world of food, the world of wine and beer and et cetera, is like, localness i can't think of the word i'm looking for it's such a big part of it right so when you when you eat local you're eating this food that comes from nearby and you are you know getting in touch with this culture of this very specific place well like there's nothing more local than 
birds. The birds of a given place are so unique and tell you so much about what's going on there. We're, we're talking about local, like in that locality. I can't think of the word I'm trying, looking for up here, but um, you know, birds really touch into this, this, this impulse, this cultural impulse as well. To kind of connect with place and, yeah. and the richness of that place that makes it unique and special. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think the shift when I had kids was I can't go far away. So the mm-hmm. sit spot practice became so much more important, not only for, um, you know, connecting with birds, but also for my mental health yeah. as well as a, as a parent with three little kids. Sure. You know, I discovered things I didn't realize were happening in my yard. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Um, I'm in uh, a small um, city in, you know, rural Vermont. Um, I'm up near the Canadian border, right near Lake Champlain. And the, you know, the Green Mountains um, are on the other side of where we live. But I'm surrounded by houses. And so I kept thinking I've got to go somewhere else to like get good birds, like to get the good birds. And what started happening was I was just noticing who was moving through during the spring and the fall, who was nesting on the property. Man, the falcons that are in the city here are Hmm. awesome. So we have merlins. There's a pair of merlins that nest in the city here every year. Hmm. And then a pair of cooper's hawks as well. So I've really gotten to know those birds well. I know where the starling nests are everywhere from, um, you know, bus stop birding with my kids. Like this is another thing that we do where it's like, you walk from home to the bus stop, like what are, what's our bird count from here to there? What mm-hmm. do we notice? All of those things. So, or even like, what are the birds feeding on? I think right now um, in our yard, we have viburnums and dogwoods. My mm-hmm. neighbor's got some black raspberries and the, the yard is rich in birds. Our neighborhood is rich in birds because there's all these food sources. So then that gets me looking at what's on the landscape that's keeping these birds here and, and how can I improve it? So I think like slowing down and noticing has just made that connection even right to my backyard and my neighborhood so much deeper. Yeah. You were recently featured in Birding Magazine uh, talking about a backyard big year. I think we frequently associate like big year as perhaps the least slow version of birding there is. You know, it's intense. There's like the time constraint built right into the name. Um, How do you reconcile these two seemingly opposite types of birding? Yeah. And you know, what's really funny. So the, um, the, uh, my colleague and good friend, Rob Fergus is the Mm -hmm. other person that, um, wrote about this, um, in the most recent issue. And, and he is so much more intense about like just getting (laughs) as many numbers down. And here I am like, you know, we're slow birding in the backyard, doing our backyard, big year list, just like two totally different ways to kind of, to kind of look at that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in part, for me, it was, I was attracted to it because I was like, oh, wow, I, I have no idea what's possible, right? I have mm. no idea really other than, you know, the feeder birds. I know my feeder birds and all of that, but this is our sixth, sixth year of doing it now. And um, I've been constantly surprised at the, the number of species that we've come up with. I think where our highest year was in the 70s. We're, we're right around 64 species right now for our yard. And it's just, it's kind of fun. Now we have a, um, an idea of who to expect and when. Right. 
we all have great ears for what's out there. And so when something new starts singing in the yard, like everybody's, everybody's keyed in on it. Um, and as a family activity, you know, I thought I was just doing it for me so I could still feel like <laughs> hurting, but everybody's into it right now. And there's even, oh God, that competitive thing is coming in again, even with the the backyard big year version. You know, my husband's yeah. not, but he's getting a little cocky with how he, <laughs> you know, getting his own birds up there on the list before I do and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's they overlap I think and again it's it's just like I can't travel around and go you know jetting from state to state um or even driving from state to state especially now right to kind of Mm -hmm. complete that big year but I can have a big year every year right where I am yeah I've been really gratified to see in the last few years um how the concept of a big year has changed you know it used to be a big year was the you know, ABA area, uh, you know, Alaska to Florida, you know, Newfoundland to San Diego, the other way, you know, as people like Dorian Anderson came along and did a biking big year. And then there are people who are doing green big years or people who are doing, you know, lower 48 or just like finding different ways to use this idea and turn it into something that is less about the numbers and is more about just like a meaningful experience. I think that's just, just a wonderful thing. Changing the perception of what birding is in a really positive way. Yeah. And giving people more access points to birding. Absolutely. As well, yeah. Right? Like yeah. I think about the whole five mile radius birding thing yeah. that yeah. started over the past couple of years. I got so jazzed by that. I was like, yeah. Ooh. and I'm not one of those people that pops up on eBird as like the top birder in our County and all of mm-hmm. that. But that year that I tried a five mile radius year, I did like for the first three months. I'm proud of that. It's a little bit of validation there. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of validation that like, and some people were like, Bridget, how did you find this? I don't know. I just started driving down a different road than I normally. Yeah. Right. We all get used to our own little favorite spots and, and bubbles for birding and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And it's, it's when you take that road that you haven't been down before that you really start to kind of, I don't know, just like reconnect and discover new stuff. Totally. You've been kind of a voice for this for a while, but do you think that this sort of ongoing pandemic is forcing birders to get into this sort of slow birding routine? I, you know, I don't want to say it's against their will because it's not no. like it's a punishment to go birding close to home, but but it's definitely a change in your priorities. And I've seen a lot of people taking this on or taking on things that are very similar yeah. to this slow birding idea. Has, has that been really interesting to see? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I joke around that I was like, so ready for the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, oh, at least someone was. Thank goodness. Right. (laughs) And, um, and, and honestly, it was pretty good for my business because it was like, oh, Bridget's doing this. Like, how do I embrace this more? Right. Mm -hmm. So it was good. I was able to provide, you know, more programs for folks who were like, all right, I'm ready to make this shift. Um, and it was really cool to see other birders across the country in different places kind of being like, wow, you're not going to believe what I saw, mm-hmm. you know, two blocks from my house today. Like just amazing stuff. So it was, I think it was just really cool to see that happen. And again, it just brought birding to so many more people. And I think too, right, like going back to this mental health thing, mm-hmm. it, gave us something to kind of, I don't want to say distract, maybe distract us 
from just for a few moments from all of the other stuff that was going on. Yeah. So yeah, there's a bird everywhere, you know, that's true. I started leading urban bird walks in downtown St. Albans um, this winter. People were shocked that there were Cooper's Hawks and actually saw one on the walk. I was so thankful because here I am like, blah, 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 (laughs) nested in the city. And boom, there they were right over the parking garage. So it's always a good feeling. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, okay, phew. All right. I can relax now. Right. Like they're, they're there. And I think rather than looking beyond the house sparrow or looking beyond the starling or the grapple or, you know, whatever it is, whatever that bird is um, for you, is just kind of taking that moment and trying to look at it through a different lens and see it differently. And I'm the pandemic definitely did that for a lot of people. Bridget Butler can be found online at birddiva.com. You can learn all about what she's doing and get some information on slow birding. Uh, Thanks again for chatting with me. This was fun. Oh, Nate, thank you too. And hey, anytime you want to come back and do birds and beers online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources that we provide, please consider joining. You get our magazine, you get discounts to our partners, and you help us promote a better birding community here and around the world. You can get more information at aviated.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Corey Clark of Houston, Texas, Logan Smith of Topeka, Kansas, Tim Johnson of Salem, Oregon, Alexander McAdam of Newton, Massachusetts, and Kate Doglish of Kitchener, Ontario, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's a big fan of slow birding, but recalls a time when he was one of the volunteers searching the Arkansas swamps for ivory-billed woodpecker, which was not only quite slow, but could also conceivably be called slew birding. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose favorite type of slow birding involves a red liquor made with gin and slows, a type of plum. You're way more likely to see some incredible stuff that way, and then suddenly nothing at all. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Nees, who think more people should be birding with frequent breaks to partake of finely shredded raw cabbage tossed with a vinegar-based salad dressing, or as they call it, slaw birding. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. We're not inclined to disagree with Irving Berlin, who, in his John James Audubon musical, Audie, get your gun, which failed off Broadway, by the way. Uh, He penned the lyric, there's no birding like slow birding, made famous, of course, by the great Newfoundland singer, Ethel Murr. Man. All right. Questions and comments and corrections can come to podcast.ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.